0: Welcome to the Art of the Christian Ninjas sermon podcast, dedicated to helping you find the tools and inspiration you need to pursue a deeper, consistent, and more meaningful relationship with God. Pastor Al Deshino speaks at Beckwith Baptist Church in Carleton Place, Ontario, Canada. And if you have any questions or comments about what you hear today, want to learn more, or just see what Pastor Al is up to, you can find him on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or on the webpage Art of the Christian ninja.com And now, here's Pastor Al with this week's message.
1: Please turn with me to Luke chapter 6 verse 17 where we read about the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, we're used to hearing about the Sermon on the Mount but Jesus obviously preached the same message more than once. And so in Luke, we read about the Sermon on the Plain. And you're going to see a lot of parallels to the Sermon on the Mount. It's sort of a, a summary document of what you see in the Sermon on the Mount uh, when you read the Sermon on the Plain. So the section begins like this. Here's the, we're going to set the, uh, set the picture. It says, and he came down with them and stood on a level place. With a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people, all from Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. So that's the context. Jesus is standing before this great multitude. He has just spent time showing divine power, divine grace, doing things only God can do and the crowd is pressing in on him seeking to get closer to that incredible power. That's that's how it works for everybody who comes to the Lord. They they witness His power. They see His grace. They feel His love. They hear His invitation to be healed, and it's attractive to them, and they want to come closer to it. Maybe, maybe they see it in the life of another believer or a Christian friend, or they, they hear the message through like a, a preacher or a teacher somewhere. Something causes them to see their world, their whole life, could be different if they just got close to Jesus. Some are driven by curiosity wondering at uh, these teachings, and they go against so so much of what the world says. Some are driven by spectacle, uh, hoping to see and experience things that they can't get anywhere else. But many, if not most, come to Jesus because they are driven by a need for healing. That's why so many Christians are accused of their faith being a crutch to get them through life. Unbelievers use the term derisively religion is a crutch, implying that if a person would just try harder, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, self-actualize, discover their inner potential, then they would be able to accomplish whatever they wanted to accomplish without the need of their you know, outside help, especially from their you know, pretend friend in the sky. But those who come to Jesus come to him because they know they're not strong enough that the world is too big, the problems are too complicated, their resources too few, their bodies, their minds, their spirits insufficient for the task. In fact, Christians, when we look at our life with Jesus, we we don't see God as our crutch. We don't see Christianity as our crutch. It's, It's way worse when we talk about it. We believe that without God, without the work of Jesus in our life, without the presence of the Holy Spirit, we're not just limping along in life in need of a crutch. We are dead and in need of resurrection it is our need that drives us to god drives us to the power of jesus just just as it was for the crowds that day our relationships are a mess and we need them fixed our bodies are falling apart and we want them healed our minds are awash with negative thoughts feelings behaviors and we need some kind of reboot Our emotions are out of whack, and we're hurting ourselves. We're hurting others out of desperation and fear. We try a whole lot of things, but in the end, nothing works, and we realize that we're not enough, and the world's not enough, and so we turn to Jesus for help. Like the crowds, we seek to touch him, for power is coming out of him, power we don't have, but we need. In the Bible... Miracles are always pointing to something else. Miracles don't just happen in a vacuum. They are, they're not just to be nice. They are guideposts. They're signs that point us to something that we're supposed to see. Jesus' miracles, just like the apostles and missionaries that would come after him, were meant to show the crowd and tell the crowd, look, this person, God is with them in a special way. This person has power and authority unlike anyone else you've ever experienced. You should listen to what he has to say. That's why the miracle is there. And then the gospel presentation would follow. And so it is here. Now for Jesus, having crowds gather around him from everywhere around and, and to press in on him was a good thing and a bad thing. It was a good thing because, you know, he was able to give grace to needy people and they were kind of a captive audience for that would would stick around and kind of hear what he had to say. But it was bad because throughout his ministry, these same people, the crowds that were gathering, they kept misunderstanding the message, his mission, his intentions. And they started only coming for the miracles and not wanting to hear what he had to say. Now, what did the crowds want? They wanted access to Jesus' power, the healing of their problems. So how did they see Jesus? Well, for many of them, Jesus became a means to an end. Come to Jesus, have him touch you or someone you care about, get the miracle, go home happy. Yea, praise God, I can walk, I can see, I'm free from unclean spirits. Now, back to my normal life just like it was before and i hope jesus sticks around in case you know something else happens that's kind of the thinking now what did jesus want he wanted them to look past the miracles to see the one who is performing them to get their minds off of their bodily needs and see their much deeper spiritual needs to to completely reorient their understanding of who God is, what God expects, and and how God intends to save them. The crowds, after experiencing Jesus' power, would try to force him to become king, lead their armies, conquer their Roman enemies, be be the one who gave them all the food and the comfort that they ever wanted. That's, That's what they wanted from Jesus. Make him the king. But that's not why Jesus came. That's not what Jesus offered. He doesn't offer... Worldly comfort, earthly success, a problem-free life. Jesus offers something greater. The salvation of our souls from hell. The restoration of our relationship with our Creator. A lifetime of fruitful discipleship with Him at our side. And then eternity with Him when we die. But the crowds didn't see that. In fact, if you asked them to choose Would they want healthy bodies and a peaceful life right now at the expense of their soul or follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior, whatever that entails? 99% of them would have said, I'll take the health and wealth right now. Today's Father's Day. And while I don't want to be overly stereotypical, it's generally the uh, father who gives the tough truths and encourages the risky behavior. Right? When the kid's learning to ride a bike, mom's the one who makes sure the kid has a helmet and pads, while dad is telling them to get up, wipe their tears, get back on the bike, and then showing them how to ride with no hands. When the kid falls at the playground, mom's instinct is to run and go help, see if they're okay. The father's instinct is to wait to see how the kid reacts. Will they cry? Will they dust themselves off, try again? Are they going to pout and say they want to leave the park? Dad knows And he wants the kid to know that to get the really good stuff, the best stuff life has, it's going to require risk, and sometimes that risk is going to end up causing pain, but we'll never be able to get the really good stuff if we're not going to be able to endure the pain. Maybe your dad was different. But in my experience, the dads I know are the ones who are more than willing to love their kids by dropping a truth bomb on them and then helping to deal with the tougher side of life. It's all well and good to say you want to become a firefighter, or a cowboy, or a superhero, or a famous artist. It's another thing to realize what you're saying, and what happens when the rubber meets the road. You know what happens to a firefighter. They fight fire. I like the phrase, where the rubber meets the road. It's descriptive. It's that moment when all the theories and plans and ideas are tested by reality. That's what it means. Now, when you consider what Jesus says to the crowds in the Sermon on the Plain, you'll see that it's a very rubber-meets-the-road message. I want you to picture the crowd. This great healer has come to town, and they're out to find him. They bring their sick, they bring their needy, they're carrying them on their backs, just so they can be touched by Jesus. And they witness miracles. The lame are dancing. The blind are seeing their families. The possessed are worshiping. The terminally sick are up and excited, hugging their families. It's an electric atmosphere. And they look at Jesus, and they think, this is the one. This is the guy. This guy has it. He's going to solve all our problems. He can feed the poor. He can heal the sick. He has immense power to do whatever he wants. Surely." He's not going to stop at what we see today. Surely he's headed to Jerusalem, take back the city, set up a new kingdom. I'm going to follow that guy. He has the power to give me what my heart's desiring. I'm going to follow him. But what does Jesus say? You see, he looks at his disciples who are surrounded by celebration who see themselves, who they themselves are drooling over the prospect of their master, setting them up as governors of the reclaimed Israel with wealth and nice houses and servants and comfort. And Jesus says, look at it, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. The term blessed there means more than just happy. It it has more to do with just feelings. It speaks of a status, a situation where a person is favored by God. Get extra attention from God, is special to God. They're blessed, they're favored by God. This is exactly the opposite of what everyone was thinking. It's exactly the opposite of what a lot of people think about Jesus when they think about the Christian religion. Everyone thought, you know when someone's blessed by God? You know how we know someone's blessed by God? How they're special to God? How God gives them extra attention? You know that because they have health, and they have wealth, and they have power, and they have privilege. That's how you know they're a, you know, one of God's favorites. Jesus says the exact opposite. In fact, the word poor there has far more implications. Uh, it's not just someone who doesn't have a lot of money. It speaks of someone who is poor in spirit who have so little, who are so needy, that they have nothing but God. Every meal, every step, every decision, everything requires that God gives it to them because they cannot get it themselves. These are people who have nothing to fall back on. No earthly security, no savings, no insurance, no safety net. They are always on the ragged edge of ruin. Their whole life is a tightrope walk without a net. That's poor in spirit. Blessed, favored, special to God are they. I can't imagine the crowd's reaction at the upside-down reality Jesus is talking about. I'm guessing the celebration just screeches to a stop. Wait, what? Blessed are the what? What? Look at verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now this type of rich wasn't just talking about you know economic status. These are people who believe themselves to be better than others. The haughty, those who use their status and power and had status and power, and they used it to oppress the poor. The one who gives no consideration for their soul, doesn't even care about their standing before God or their place in eternity. They are content to have some worldly consolation through their stuff, and they make themselves feel better by treating others badly. Woe to them. And again, that seems opposite to us. In their world, and in our world today, think about it, we think the blessed ones are the ones who have lots of stuff, who have the power to do what they want, don't ever need anyone else, and who can command respect and attention wherever they go. Wow, that person really must be blessed by God. Holy moly. People, people that others get nervous around. Who can snap their fingers and demand things and have it happen simply because of who they are. Those are the people we look up to. Those are the people we want to be. Those are the people who, who, who we seek after. We'll read their books and we'll watch their videos. We'll follow them on Instagram and we'll find out their secrets and how do you get to be who you are? Rich, successful, powerful, feared. Why? Because their life is better. Their life we see as blessed. Who do we not want to be? We don't want to be poor, desperate, insecure, powerless, hand to mouth. Given the choice who would you be? We see the poor in spirit as cursed. Jesus turns that upside down. This is why I say the Sermon on the Plain is so rubber meets the road. Because Jesus is outlining what life in the kingdom really looks like. Everyone around is thinking, Let's make this guy king. Let's listen to this guy. Let's do what this guy says. He's going to lead us to great things. He's really blessed by God. We can't wait to see what he does. Let's, see, get, let's get in on that action. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm here to set up the kingdom. I'm here to inaugurate a new age. I'm here to gather a people unto myself who will follow me, people who will see the world the way I see the world and treat people how I want them to be treated. And Jesus turns to his disciples, the ones who are you know, choosing to follow him, the ones who have said, I will follow you, and he says, okay, are you ready to hear what life in my kingdom with me as king looks like? Do you want to know the type of people that I'm going to attract and save and empower and use to spread my kingdom and my gospel? Do you want to know, really, do you want to hear really what my kingdom is all about? But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And you can hear the disciples say, Yeah, Jesus, I get it. I get it. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. We got a little ahead of ourselves. You, you want to use the humble. You want to use the, you know, the, the the hungry. You want to use the outcast, right? I get it. We're one of those for sure, because that way you show your power. You demonstrate a miracle that that can be, you know, someone else's life can become a miracle, and you, they can see you in them for sure. I can totally get behind that. Makes sense. But then, Jesus, once you have got your army of outcasts, we're gonna go conquer the enemies, right? You're going to destroy the bad people, overthrow the corrupt government, take away the tax collectors who are stealing our money, punish the rich people who are taking advantage of us, punish the slave owners, the racists who think that they're so great and treat us like garbage. You're going to wipe those people out, right? Look at verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the right cheek, offer the other also. To the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic as well. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good for you, what benefit is that for? Is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend from those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lead to, lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful even as your father is merciful what you can hear him wow jesus that's that's tough love our abuser Give away things and don't expect them back? That is not what I expected you to say. Well, okay. I get it. Treat our enemies kindly. You're Jesus after all. Okay. I'll be content knowing I'm just a better person than they are. They're condemned to judgment. I'll treat them nice to their face. But I'll never forgive those terrible people and what they've done to me and those I love. Look at verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it'll be measured back to you. Yeah, okay, Jesus, but that's like your opinion, right? You're a good teacher. You've done some good things. You've got some pretty extreme ideas. So I'm going to take what you're teaching into consideration. I'm going to go talk to some other people. I'm going to go find some other teachers. I'm going to read some other books. I'm going to learn about some other ways of thinking. And then I'm going to you know, take some of your stuff and mash it together and come up with something that you know works for me because your stuff is really extreme, but it's got some good, so I'm going figure to it, figure it out. Look at verse 39. He also told him a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Okay. So you're saying, I'm not smart enough to know what's right and wrong. You're saying, I don't know who to trust and who not to. That's what blind leading the blind, I get that. Okay, I don't know what I'm doing. There's anybody else. You know what you're doing. I'm supposed to follow you. But here's the thing that you don't understand about me, Jesus. I see clearly than most. Sure, some of these dummies need you to teach them right and wrong, but I don't. When I look around and I see a whole bunch of people, I realize they, they know way less than me. They're worse people than me. I'm smart, and they need me more than I need them. Verse forty-two. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, "Brother, let me take that speck out of that is in your eye," when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. All right, well then if my eye's full of logs and I can't see straight because of my own sin, my own biases, fine, then how do I know who to listen to? How can I know who's telling me the truth? How can I know which people are your followers, which one have your priorities, which ones are false, which ones are trying to mess me up? How how do I tell the shepherds from the wolves then? Fine, I will listen. How do I know who to listen to? Verse 43. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of their heart, his mouth speaks. You see, Jesus' kingdom, his way, his word, are so often the opposite of what we feel is right. Feelings are dangerous. Coming up with our own mashed up version of what we think God and religion and right and wrong is, is dangerous. We're not capable. That's why Jesus started with, blessed are the poor, hungry, weeping, and reviled. Because those are the ones who are open to him. Because if you live the Christian life, if you follow Jesus, if he's your Lord, and you follow the Word of God in every aspect of your life, if you pick up your cross daily and follow Jesus, you're going to end up where Jesus ended up. Poor, hungry, weeping, reviled. And those who follow Him should expect nothing less. Realizing you're poor, hungry, weeping, and reviled opens you to being saved. Being saved helps you realize Following Jesus will make you poor, hungry, weeping, and reviled. Jesus says, love your enemies. Loving your enemies is going to make you more enemies. Because people are going to misunderstand you. Even your side will turn on you because you're not hating who you're supposed to hate knowing you're poor, foolish, sinful, easily led astray, believing that about yourself, changing how you think about yourself, putting yourself humbly before God, trusting that, you know what, I need God to lead me and guide me because I can't do it, is going to confuse a lot of people. Especially North America. Every time you say, I'm waiting on God, I will not move unless God moves with me. I will not reach for that which he has not given to me. They're going to get mad at you. Your family. Your parents. They're going to argue with you. They're going to call you foolish and stupid and lazy and an extremist. Unrealistic. Your faith in God, your belief that you need God, will make faithless people very upset. Loving the unlovable, the thief, the abuser, it's going to hurt you. Going back over and over, opening yourself up over and over, giving your heart away over and over, only to have it mangled by the one you're trying to love, will make you spend a lot of time weeping. But that's what you're called to. That's so Jesus is... His arms are always open. That's how God the Father is. He always welcomes the prodigal son home with celebration, not condemnation. It's hard, and it's going to make you weep. Following God's Word, standing on His promises, doing things His way, is going to cause people to revile you. The world, and all the people, and sorry, The world and a lot of people in the church have a real hatred for anybody who plants their feet firmly on the Word of God and refuses to move unless they're convinced from Scripture. Inside the church and outside the church. They're going to argue with you. They're going to beg you to compromise. They're going to tempt you towards an easier way out, just like Satan did to Jesus in the wilderness. But we respond the way Jesus did, with more Scripture. But taking that stand, that stand on the word of God, I will do it according to the word of God, will make a lot of people inside and outside the church hate your guts. Christianity is not an easy road. During times like we're going through now, as individuals, as a church, a province and a country, our convictions are facing a real test. We're forced to decide whether we believe that Jesus is Lord and we have to do things his way despite how we feel. Or whether we think we know better because his way doesn't feel right. Every day, especially over the past couple of weeks, there have been dozens of really important options laid out before us. Ones that are clear in Scripture. And we've been given the opportunity to either follow Jesus and do the hard thing or not. This pandemic, this season in our church, if it's done anything, it has shown you how strong your convictions really are, how firm your faith really is, how pure your mind really is, and where your weaknesses really are. It has been a refining fire, a revealing fire fire. It's showing you whether you're ruled by fear or you're ruled by Jesus, whether you're ruled by greed or you're ruled by Jesus, whether you're ruled by your appetite or you're ruled by Jesus. I hope you've been paying attention because God has been giving us a crash course on the cost of discipleship lately. Let me close with how Jesus closes his Sermon on the Plain with another very rubber-meets-the-road statement. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when a flood arose, the steam broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell. And the ruin of that house was great.
0: Thanks for listening to today's Art of the Christian Ninja Sermon Podcast. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, head over to artofthechristianninja.com and check the Contact Me button to send an email to Pastor Al. While you're there, hit the subscribe by email button, use the search bar to discover lots of other topics, and even download all of Pastor Al's books for free. May the Lord be with you.